Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Best Pictures Podcast. We've been looking forward to this for a long time, but we are finally at our 100th episode. And for that, we are throwing way, way back to 1927's Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans. This film was a silent romantic drama directed by F.W. Murnau in his American film directorial debut. Uh, He previously had made a name for himself in Germany as a leader of the German expressionist cinema movement, which we can kind of talk about a little bit when we get more into the film itself and like which qualities are sort of taken from that movement. It stars George O'Brien, Janet Gaynor, and Margaret Livingston. Um, And it is most well known for being the first and only winner of the Academy Award for Unique and Artistic Picture. You know, I'm really sad we still don't have that because I feel like so many other films are worthy of a win for something being like significant, even if maybe it didn't make the cut for, quote, best picture or you just had a really like banger year. Well, and I think that like there are some years where I feel like the picture that wins best picture also would be like the most unique and artistic, which I guess there would be nothing wrong with a movie taking home both of those awards, you know, but I, you know, there are some years where either the one that wins, I'm like, yeah, it's a great movie, but like this other wasn't really like cool or unique. Or there have been some years where the one that wins Best Picture, I don't think actually was the best picture, but would have been most artistic and unique. Uh, The Last Emperor comes to mind. Oh, for sure. And honestly, I think it's a very different spin and gives room for experimentation and moving outside of a, quote, mainstream Oscar fodder sort of film. Because I know that there have been some winners there where we're like, yeah, this was total Oscar bait. Like... Sorry, it's kind of (laughs) true. And also, it doesn't necessarily hinge on commercial success. And we kind of see that with this first Academy Award ceremony, right? So, like, Sunrise was not a box office hit at the time. Um, But, of course, it is recognized for its artistry, whereas the film that takes home the Outstanding Picture Award, which kind of is considered the genesis of the current Best Picture Award, Wings, extremely su- successful commercially. You know, it's a World War One film. Uh, I don't want to say it's like pro-war, but it, it is a little bit more of the like upbeat, patriotic in a lot of ways. Um, despite like the sad ending and stuff like that, but you know, it doesn't shy away from the horrors of war. I would say right. But it definitely seems more of like what we're used to seeing as like a best picture winner. Whereas I will say Sunrise did feel like something very unique and different. So something a little different too about this first Oscars. Um, As we mentioned, we have of course this award, the unique and artistic picture that isn't continued uh, starting with the second Academy Awards. But also, actors and actresses could be nominated and awarded for multiple performances, as in they received the award for like a body of work versus one particular performance. So Janet Gaynor, who in Sunrise plays the wife, none of the characters have names, they all just have like monikers as kind of a way to say like, this could be anyone, this is just a human story, Um, a song of two humans, if you will. 
but she actually <laughs> wins for her work on Sunrise, Seventh Heaven, and Street Angel. So a, kind of a compilation of three films instead of just one. Ah, I'm really torn on that like way of awarding that award. I, uh. So, you know, they have, I forget the particular name for it, but there's like the Lifetime Achievement Oscar. Yeah. I feel like that's become the sort of like a, you know, this great actor, you know, maybe never won an Oscar for their Mm -hmm. work or something, but their entire body of work is extremely impressive and influential. So I I feel like they, they have something in place for that kind of thing. It's just more, I'm thinking about like, okay, you can have one outstanding performance or you can have five good performances and like, which one is quote better. This is it. I, I, I don't have an answer. Well, I was going to say in the first one, you could win for just one performance. I think, um, no, I think the best actor was nominated for two movies, but it didn't yes. have to be like three movies or like every movie you did that year. Okay. That makes more sense. That's just a super interesting way to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. They were definitely like, you know, talk about unique and artistic that first Oscar ceremony. They were playing around with a lot of different stuff. Um, While I said that this movie was not a box office or commercial success at the time, it has since garnered a lot of critical praise and is now widely considered like one of the best movies of that era. And actually in the 10th anniversary uh, AFI list of top 100 films, it was ranked number 82. It was also ranked number 63 in AFI's passions list. Not sure if I love that. (laughs) I mean, I think... The premise doesn't age well, but the a, a, after the attempted murder, the film gets really good. So if you put I'll, aside I'll the attempted murder, <laughs> yeah, if you ignore the attempted murder, I mean, like it's a really I, sweet story. Yeah, it, it's it's quite absurd, but I I do want to call out that yeah, the setup is very much of its time, and but the artistic merit of the latter part of the film is way up there. So I, I'm willing to like see it within the context of 1927. Right. I would say with the premise, but I, at the same time, like they are dealing with like very like complicated emotions and stuff. And even though the acting is very stylized, both from the silent era and the like element of German expressionalism that Murnau brings, you know, to his directing and the performances, I like, there's still, I don't know. It is a very, very human story, you know. If you, if you ignore is the it? attempted we'll, murder, we'll get there. <laughs> if you ignore the attempted murder, <laughs> oh no! <laughs> I mean, I guess murder is a very human thing, especially before we banned lead and everything. True. So you know. <laughs> True. Well, I, you know, I, I, we've covered we we've covered movies that felt less real. So true. So and true. emotionally um, deep. So there were only two other films nominated for this category, and it was Chang and The Crowd, neither of which I am familiar with. Same. I have honestly decided after watching this and thinking back on Wings more that I need to, one, remember that silent films are a thing, and then two, remember that also silent films are good and actually make an effort to watch more. <laughs> Because I feel like I'm missing out on a whole body of film prior to about 1930, which, you know, is foundational. 
Same. And um, speaking of which, like, let's move into our watch notes. This movie is incredibly dynamic with, like, camera movement and cinematography. And that is not something I always associate with silent film. Or even talkies from that time. Like, well, I would say maybe especially talkies because the recording equipment kind of constrained them in ways that they weren't for this. I think that's what happens, right? Like, I think you probably have, and again not really a connoisseur of silent film, but in kind of those early silent films, you probably do have a lot more like static camera and stuff like that. As people figure out the equipment, they learn how to move it and do like tracking shots and do like a lot of interesting stuff with the camera. I start using a lot of like forced perspective. And then with the introduction of talkies, like you're saying, you have all of this new clunky equipment that you have to start working around. And so you have to relearn how to integrate everything. So you probably then go back to very static things. I'm thinking particularly Broadway Melody of 1929 and how we saw just like some wild set design and just very little camera movement because <laughs> that's how you had to work around the mic. How to work around stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I completely share that sentiment. And it's also very sparse on the title cards, minus the like very introduction, like first introduction of the premise, which I found to be maybe a tad heavy handed. But also, since there's not a lot of dialogue to re- really set up the themes, I'm more open to a grounding with some, uh, I guess, title card exposition at the beginning. It, it was a little schmaltzy for me, though. The like, life is sometimes bitter and sometimes sweet, even if you're in the country versus the city. And I'm like, okay, this is a little highfalutin for me. But <laughs> well, I mean, I was kind of like, I, I could have gathered these themes, but like, I don't, you know, I don't know. It depends on that's kind of the style of the time, I guess. Because I feel like Wings also did something similar. I meant to go back and rewatch Wings, but Wings is very long. Yeah, the remastered version is over two hours. (laughs) So, But we have like up front this really cool transition from one of the title cards where you have the title card that's done on like the drawing of the train station and then it fades into the actual like train station as the movie kicks off. Loved that. And they are heavy in on the multiple exposure effects through that entire kind of relocation montage. And I loved how they called it like summer vacation time. It's like, okay, cool. This has been a thing. Not that I didn't know that, but it's still, it's funny to see it so clearly outlined. Yeah. Well, and it kind of leads to like the fantasy element, right? Where you have like the double exposure, like the fade ins and stuff like that. Like it, it leads it to this, you know, sort of dark fantasy kind of vibe. Um, we get introduced to the woman from the city played by Margaret Livingston. Who lingers. I loved loved that particular turn of phrase for like, okay, she's still here. She's just lingering. But I'm also kind of like, if the city is that crazy and smelly and whatever, and I'm out in this beautiful like countryside, maybe I would linger too. That's kind of how I'm feeling right now. I'd like to go linger by a lake. <laughs> I would, let's go linger by a lake, Ian. I want to do that. <laughs> Stop recording. Let's go. Um, it's rather toasty here right now so uh i mean same to escape just with humidity (laughs) but the the way that they're able to kind of set her up as a character is is really great so not only from everything around her too like she is you know dressed 
in like well one she's always dressed in for the most part in like very dark clothing um she's in like the you know the really nice lingerie and then like the high heels and like her uh very pretty like silky dress and everything and then of course that look contrasted with the people who are running i guess the inn or wherever Mm -hmm. it is she's staying and also even just like the interior of that set with like the wooden beams it's very like reminiscent of like a german fairy tale kind of look yeah i would describe the general location as nondescript central europe (laughs) like it it could take place again pretty much anywhere which i think is the intent there um and especially given that the director was german it totally doesn't surprise me that there is kind of that locality applied in the film yeah and again i think it gives it kind of the fantasy whimsy element yeah yeah i'd agree i also do want to call out the the soundtrack for being phenomenal here like you get this kind of like pizzicato like kind of slinky sounding transition as the woman from the city is leaving the house in the middle of the night going to uh whistle at the man who uh again just the man but especially with silent film and the omnipresent soundtrack i found that to be so important for the grounding um of each of the scenes and also for like the general ambiance which like i realize i'm making a very obvious statement there but very much noticed the intention behind the soundtrack and appreciated it a lot yeah i was very very into the music um it was hugo reisenfeld who did the music for this um and i loved it and there's a particular instance with it that i want to call out kind of towards the end of the film that i was just like absolutely brilliant um also so on this film they used a new sound on film technique so it was one of the first features with synchronized musical score and sound effects oh nice I tried to read up on that technology. I didn't understand a lot of it, I will admit. I think that I've, was this the, this isn't the magnetic strip, right? It's like uh, on film stock. It's like on film stock. Yeah. Yeah. So my understanding is that you can project that onto some sort of, I think like piezoelectric something. Basically by projecting, you're able to move a diaphragm and then that diaphragm is amplified to provide the soundtrack. So like you have essentially a sound form on one side of the film stock um, that, that syncs the audio could be kind of off base on the specifics, but I'm pretty sure that's generally how it works. (laughs) Sounded legit to me, but we do get introduced to the man and the wife as they're there, which could they please have given the wife a better wig? No, (laughs) that I just, it's because she's, it's she's my, so like wholesome and traditional. But she has ears. She has ears. We never see them. <laughs> I would have been like, okay, just pull it up anyway. That total aside there. But it's a bad wig. It's a very bad wig. I, uh, uh, every time I saw it, I'm like, why? Why? But it's done to really contrast her from the woman from the city, right? Like sh- the woman from the city has like, the dark, very stylish bob. The wife has like the much more old school, like braided bun part down the middle. Blonde is in very, I'm going to go with your nondescript central European traditional garb. Yeah. It's 
a look for sure. Um, <laughs> the man is already looking so tortured. I, so I was not super. I liked the posture at first. He's very kind of like stooped and hunching and like seems very tortured. I think uh, George O'Brien's doing a lot with his eyes and stuff, which I appreciate. But I wanted to see his posture change as like his character evolved and yeah. stuff. Like I wanted to see him standing up straighter at the end and like the symbol of like he knew who he was again. But he honestly, until they get to the city, felt very reminiscent of Frankenstein's monster in a way like OG Frankenstein's monster, which. When you say OG, do you mean movie or book? I mean, movie. Okay. Definitely movie. Cause it's just that like really stiff, like shoulders in your ears. Like, I, I don't know. I, I wasn't a huge fan of his performance until later, but then I was all for it. I mean, it's very stylized. I took it as like a symbol of like tension and he's kind of like beat down and like stressed and mm-hmm. conflicted. Um, it reminded me a little bit of the movement of Nosferatu in the 1922 pick, which was directed by F.W. Murnau. Oh, so that that's interesting. Sense. But I mean, I, you know, I don't think it's wrong that it reminded you of Frankenstein's monster because the man is a bit of a monster. Yeah. When they, meaning the woman from the city and the man meet out in the reeds and share this passionate like make out session, which beautiful shot there with the the moon over the water and kind of the reeds in the background and her kind of flouncily playing with the flower. And it's, it's just such a great setup for her. And then, and then you start having the like kind of double exposure with like the city as if mm-hmm. she were like telling him how great the city is before she does the like, kill your wife and run away with me to the okay. city. It's couldn't your wife just be drowned? Like, what? <laughs> this is the part where there are a couple things. I just, sorry, there's a couple uh, things I want to talk about really quickly, and then we'll come back to that. Because there's a really nice bit from Janet Gaynor when uh, she comes back and the husband is left. Well, first oh, yeah. off, we have the husband's shadow in the windowsill as the city lady is like whistling, and you just see his shadow appear and like points as if like meet me over there. Loved that bit of cinematography. Um, but you have the moment from Janet Gaynor where she comes back in and he's gone and she's got, she's like setting the table for dinner and she just slowly lowers that bowl. Yeah. And there's like an immediate change in her demeanor. I really liked that moment. Okay. Sorry. Now we can go back to plotting the murder. Oh yeah. The murder plot. I was like, okay, this is fine. This is fine. This is not fine. (laughs) And so that, that's kind of the, setup that I mentioned that for me doesn't really age well like just leave your wife you don't have to kill her but also it was the 20s so maybe you did I I don't know I don't (laughs) actually I don't actually mean that let me just text Patrick really quickly and (laughs) warn him that you're homicidal couldn't he just be drowned no I could never (laughs) I want to talk about the title card though here yeah coming in with the artisticness hot right here so you have the title card for like the woman from the city. Um, no, this isn't from her. There's the one where we're talking about being drowned. Yes. Sorry. I had a note on another title card earlier where they're using the title cards to kind of bookend these little flashbacks. 
And on one of them, the title card, the first one is, now he ruins himself for that woman from the city. Moneylenders strip the farm. Flashback happens. That title card comes back. And then a line fades in with, and his wife sits alone. Ah, uh, so yeah. That fade in was really nice. But then also when they're talking about the murder and she's like, couldn't she be, it's like, couldn't she be, and there's a pause and then drowned materializes. And then it's as if the words and the text melts. Mm-hmm. Like they're very cool. sinking below the surface. It, it, they very, very cool. did not waste an opportunity on the title cards, which is glorious. <laughs> I mean, it's so cool to see. And I believe in that, the first one and I think a couple of the other early Oscars there was like an Oscar for title writing because title cards were so um key to movies and silent films especially but like it's so fun to like see them have fun with it yeah and like do visual effects cool. this this was does not appear to be nominated um for title writing but I'm kind of not surprised because the titles were not as instrumental to the film i think it relied much more heavily on the action of the actors and the way that they were interacting with their um i guess whirlwind second honeymoon of sorts agreed but i just i love the inventiveness there yeah but we get some more exposition some really cool shots of the woman from the city and the man gathering some reeds and plotting how to look like the drowning was an accident. I, Can we talk okay. about this plan? It the whole premise is flawed, so I'm willing to forgive a flawed plan. <laughs> I mean, it's very simple, but the the plan is they have just like a bundle of or a couple bundles of just reeds, and she's like, "Take your wife onto the river, push her in, I guess, like sink the boat, whatever." you float to safety on these reeds and then you can scatter them and just be like, I miraculously survived. Here's where I think the biggest flaw is. Maggie, it's logical. It's so logical. Also, she's from the city, so she doesn't know what she's talking about. (laughs) Ian, let's say you had been hanging out with another podcast host behind my back. And then that podcast host from the city (laughs) was like... We're going to drown Maggie. And you were like, hey, remember how we were like, we want to go chill by a lake? Do you want to go chill by a lake? And I was like, sure. And you were like, let's get in this boat. And then you got on the boat with just like a big ass bundle of reeds. I'd be like, so uh, what's this? Oh, but no, didn't you see him hide them? I would have been sneaky enough. You would not have seen the reeds. I think I would have seen the reeds. You wouldn't have seen the reeds. They weren't that well hidden. I'd have seen the reeds. I'd have seen the reeds. Uh, okay. Whatever you say. <laughs> Just wait. Next time I come to visit, reeds will be stashed somewhere and you're not going to see them until weeks them. later. <laughs> I will see the reeds. I maintain I would see the reeds. But I was also kind of like, y- y'all live next to this lake river thing and you don't swim? It's bad luck to be able to swim. Okay. Um, <laughs> that was a superstition back in the day. Wait, if you were really? a sailor, it was bad luck to know how to swim. Yeah. Oh, interesting. I think you that's not being very pragmatic. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> no. <laughs> it wasn't. So anyway, 
he slinks back to the house, kind of sneaks in the soundtrack with this low, pulsing, trance-like state. I love him it's walking so in the good. night in the fog. Mm-hmm. It's like this whole mood around it where it's just ominous and you know something bad is going to happen. And meanwhile, I want to talk about, sorry, just like the amount of tracking shots we have. Like the, oh, the yeah. camera is very much like following him both to and from this like clandestine meeting. It's, yeah, it's super, super dynamic. Well, and I want to say that that was part of one of the innovative things that this film did was that cinematography with the tracking shots, with, which this did win for cinematography. I'll be honest, can't remember if you mentioned that, but absolutely I deserved. I did not. I completely forgot to, but it did win for cinematography. Uh, Charles Rocher and Carl Struess. So I second that. I love it. Honestly, like some of, I would put it top third among best picture winners for cinematography that we've seen. Absolutely agree. It's up there. It's really good. So we get this really tense, dark return home contrasted almost immediately with the wife's questionably sweet, like covering her husband with a blanket and then going about her day feeding the like chickens and stuff, which I, I don't know. It's fine. Again, I'm not going to linger too much on the premise. It's fine. It's fine. But He's like, let's go on a trip. And she is pumped. And you get this really off-putting juxtaposition of her joyously getting ready and being like, oh, I love you, son slash daughter slash kid. We're going on a trip. We'll be back soon. And him prepping for the drowning. And that just so off-putting. Like, ugh. Yeah. I feel like at this point... I've just I've I've listened to enough true crime podcasts. I've watched enough movies. If your partner's cheating on you and is suddenly like, let's go on a trip, I'm gonna recommend don't. <laughs> true crime was, you know, all the rage on the airwaves in nineteen twenty seven. So I agree with you. They should have known. I uh, you don't know that. <laughs> it could have been. I'm just saying. <laughs> When Ian spontaneously is like, let's go on a trip on the river, I'm going to start, you know, going through his phone to see what other podcast hosts he's been talking to. I promise I won't murder you. You better not podcast cheat on me. Or for another podcast host. Or just generally, like to be clear. Oh, that'd be good too. Actually, you know what? Let's let's say generally. Let's cover those bases. Now, in that sequence, there were some more cool visual effects with some double exposures where the woman from the city was kind of like hanging on the man as he's like grappling with this decision. So cool. I loved this. I loved that. And it was like almost like she was like the memory of her is like whispering in his ear. Yeah. yeah. So well done. So I do think sometimes with the invention of talkies that we at times lost some of that like wonderful visual symbolism and the whimsy of it. Yeah. I love how you just described that scene as uh, having whimsy. Um, It's darkly whimsical. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. (laughs) I just don't, I don't think about murder and whimsy together. It's like a, it's, (laughs) it's like a Grimm's fairy tale versus a Disney one. Uh, Yeah. Okay. Yep. Never mind. I'm on board. I like this. So they are going. She does not notice the bundle of reeds. Um, 
we get this like interlude with the dog who we think is going to save the day. Doesn't save the day, but it is interesting. It almost does. It's a great little bit of tension though. It is. And the way that Janet Gaynor is able to show kind of the switch in mood with not only her expressions, but also the way she's carrying herself is great. Because as soon as the dog is taken back, you can tell that she's starting to kind of catch on. She just knows something's off. It's a, it, you can see it in her expression, like the recognition that something is off, but not knowing exactly what yet. Yeah. Yeah. And then we get to this massive climax where the man menacingly stands over his wife and is threatening to throw her in. She knows what's happening. We know what's happening. The way they edited and shot, especially him in this scene, just added the to that. The way he just slowly Ugh. stands uh-huh. and the soundtrack like moves and builds with him as he like slowly stalks towards her. And we're looking up at him as he takes up the whole frame. Like it's it's scary. And then I feel like what saves her is the church bell, right? And I wasn't sure whether the church bell was a real church bell or it was just a symbol. I Yeah, I mean, whether or not it's real or like in the mind of the character, I think the whole point is because she also kind of has her hands clasped as if like pleading or mm-hmm. in prayer. I think it's supposed to be like divine intervention. Divine intervention that kind of saves her. It's like the like a spark of goodness or something in him that makes him not murder his wife. Well, it's good she didn't learn how to swim. Otherwise, I don't think she would have gotten that divine intervention. You're right. Because it's I, bad luck. <laughs> so they do make it to shore. And understandably, she bolts. And he... Yeah, I love that she immediately <laughs> runs. I love that she immediately runs. That's so logical. <laughs> like, finally. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And then he's like, don't be afraid of me, dude. Re- what? <laughs> Why would she not be afraid of you? You just tried to throw her overboard. <laughs> My note is, sir, we are so far past that. <laughs> yeah, he's like, don't be afraid of me. Don't be afraid. Why are you afraid? And it's like, well, <laughs> I just shall we count uh, the waves? So they take the tram into the city. I, I'm going to... This is an interesting switch here because... Yeah, she hops on the tram to, like, get away. He also hops onto the tram, and the conductor's there just like, something odd's happening, but this is a domestic dispute. I won't get involved. He doesn't actually say that, I'm assuming, given the times. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But they get into the city, and she is quickly overwhelmed by... It's a combination of her husband just tried to kill her and busy, scary city. So, like... She almost gets hit by a car. He does like pull her out of the way. And you have this wonderful tracking shot of them navigating through traffic. And she's kind of almost zombie-esque. Um, he's like holding her up and like steering her and leading her through it. And it it's a very sudden but interesting switch. Yes, but he's still kind of giving us hollow husk of a man. Yes, and she still is, like, tentative towards him. Oh, for sure. They so go to I the will ca- give the movie credit for it does take some to open them both back up. Yes. It takes some time. So they do make it to a cafe. He gives her bread because, um, of course, it makes up for him almost drowning her. Uh, okay, Ian, it doesn't make up for it. But also, 
would you <laughs> turn down the bread? Uh, no. And she doesn't even not. take a bite. Like, come on, you need your sustenance to continue to run away from your murderous husband. Like, <laughs> yes. I... You need those calories, girl. Get those carbs. <laughs> but her performance here is really great. And it's, I, I, I wasn't, it's a stylistic choice is what I'm, again, chalking it up to when she got on the tram and was very inwardly focused, like head down, basically injured bird with its head tucked under its wing is kind of how I viewed that pose. But when they get to the cafe, this range starts to open up. And that is where I think both Janet Gaynor and George O'Brien start to shine in their respective roles. Um, So they ultimately do some more running. He tries to comfort her awkwardly by like, he buys her. her. That is the most awkward comforting I've ever seen in my life. Let's see if we can describe how this went. Cause I, I like wrote extensive notes on it. It's an open palm, like swipe open palm, but fingers are all together. He's high fiving her shoulder. It's like the queen of England wave is how your hand is structured. And then you just like short, small, pats on someone's arm it's as if you were like a barbie doll trying to pat a dog it was weird am i painting a good enough word picture i mean it's it's pretty true it's and understandably she's not comforted it's uh, very awkward <laughs> i think some flowers came into the picture too he he bought her like some carnations that's how you get your wife to forgive you for almost murdering her as you buy her bread and flowers. The thing is, bread got us like half of the way there. The carnations got us another like 30% of the way there. But we've got Would you like, rather have bread or flowers? Uh, if bread. Patrick tried to murder you and was bread? Uh, yeah, bread. And by bread, I mean... I'd rather have the bread. Also lots of money because <laughs> <laughs> that settlement would be huge. Um, <laughs> but... They notice a wedding going on, which I'm like, is wedding crashing a thing that is allowed? I, apparently. I want to talk about the cinematography, though, in this wedding scene. Because it's so pretty. that and the lighting is brilliant. Oh. You have, of course, like the couple getting married at the front of the church with like the officiant. And you have just this stream of light coming to the win- through the window, presumably. You don't actually see the window. But highlighting like that couple. As in like, you know, this is the light. This is the happiness all of that. And then our two main characters are in the darkness of the church, just watching. And it's like this lovely moment of them seeing almost like a mirror to their younger selves of like, that was us. Like we were happy. We were in a good place. There's a a line earlier where somebody remarks on like how they used to laugh. Yeah. And now they don't. And, and the title cards with the vows are, Again, sparing titles, but so important here because that is the, this is extremely heteronormative and traditional and uh, stereotypical, but in the context of the film is what needed to happen. It's like the vows about taking care of your wife and loving her is what breaks Not the man. drowning her. I mean, that's kind of implied, but yes. <laughs> it's, Imagine it's if they taking care explicitly of, I put drowning on the title card. <laughs> I'm going to have, I'm going to, you know what? I'm going to have that in my vows just to cover my bases. <laughs> I just want that one specifically called out. Um, but it is, it kind of makes this next scene, like it breaks the husband, but then you have 
the husband and the wife leaving the church. And it's almost kind of this lovely moment of like, as if they renewed their vows to each other. Mm -hmm. And they have immediately before that, this beautiful scene kind of in the back up against a wall with these beautiful ornate shadows on them as they're essentially making up for whatever just went down. I'm kind of like, uh, that turn of phrase maybe is not the best way to put it. Um, it's more like he had a change of heart and she is, um, being the ever faithful and forgiving wife. Yes. Oh, we are, we are dealing with like a very old and tired, uh, archetype. It is with her. But it doesn't mean that it didn't work in the film context. It works. I know it did. It did. So as they come out of the church, we get this really fun scene of them essentially waltzing through traffic again, which cool effect where they had them cut out and like had the cars like going in and around them, which I cannot imagine the effort to cut a single frame out of each of them so that you could like intersperse it with the like background frames, such a pain in the ass. I don't know if there was a way to do that more easily than manually cutting each, each exposed frame, but it was a cool effect. And then they have the slapstick moment pissed, though with the, them blocking traffic, get out of the way. I mean, but it's a fun this slapstick moment. Ian, you get this the like is the honk city. Honks. People got places to be. They and- got places to go. <laughs> But they do make up. They want to go get pictures. But of course, he his physical appearance has not quite transformed to match his uh, mental reticence. I was so excited we were going to get a makeover montage. And we got a little cheated out of it. I, was I wanted hoping, them both to get makeovers. Yeah. But she was like, do not cut my ugly wig. <laughs> but also remember, she is like the symbolic, pure, perfect wife. I know she's not supposed to have to change because she's not flawed. I just, I wanted her to get a makeover for her, you know? I wanted her to get a makeover for her, her hearing confidence. <laughs> so she could hear. <laughs> a big ass wig. Um, we get some like interesting bits here. There's like, while he's getting shaved, there's the manicurist who comes over who's like, flirting with him and then he like refuses the manicure I guess is a symbol of like he, this time he's refusing the advances of somebody else and like she's really like haha about it and like smug about it mm-hmm. the wife is um I was like just let like just get the manicure <laughs> you probably need it you work on a farm yeah but also it's so I viewed that as them cementing they, they both were quote tested and both actively chose the other. Cause not only did you have the manicurist going after the husband, you also had this random dude being creepy and overbearing while the wife was waiting for her husband to get his shave done. He was I, all up in her personal space. Yeah, and like was forcing her up on the hot towel warmer thing. And I'm like, this is unacceptable. Steals a carnation. I know. Sir. Now, the buildup of the tension after the husband is all clean-shaven. This husband's a psychopath. I mean... He's like, he pulls out a knife on this dude. Yeah, I was ready for a knife fight, but then he just cut the carnation off. So I was like, shit. (laughs) This is an escalation. 
Yeah, that's what I was. I was like not ready for the knife escalation, and the score comes in like super hard on it too. I was like, Jesus Christ! Yeah, are you gonna take another turn? But the way that they lit the wife. I'm just in saying, this, this oh, man is considered murder a lot lately. A lot, and I mean, even the dude who was uh, being a boorish asshole uh, grabbed his neck like, "Oh, I just got sliced," and I'm like. I wonder if we're supposed to feel like the husband took the high road. I I don't know. I hated that dude. Like, I didn't like the obnoxious dude. Like, obviously, like, he was harassing her. But also the fact that, like, then the husband has to come in and, like, threaten violence. Defend her honor. Yeah, it's it's of the time. Um, (laughs) Also, I just wanted to be like, sir, you have no, like, you are not allowed to act jealous in any way, shape or form considering past actions i mean at least he's performing his uh quote husbandly duties i don't know don't quote me on that again i just i feel like i don't know anyway i was just i'm dubious of the husband now i mean understandably i have been the whole film but also george o'brien cleans up well (laughs) i'll just leave it at that (laughs) The, True. I do want to also talk about the photography scene because yes, this was a nice so little sweet. sweet comedic scene. It's honestly that is my favorite scene in the whole movie. I think because it's you get them. Not only did they have the chance in the barbershop to like actively choose one another, now you get to see them like acting like young lovers again, and, and you get to see them laugh. Which yeah. is the thing that they used to do all the time. And yeah, it kind of like cements the, um, I guess, renewing of the vowels mm-hmm. is what I'm going to call this scene. Uh, I love him trying to be like all proper and like stuff for the picture, like not smiling, standing up super straight, like comically so. And of course, she's finding that hilarious. She can't stop giggling. He starts giggling. And then you have um, them like stealing kisses, but then the photographer catches it like on film though that is like an old school camera so it's like now hold that kiss for like two minutes (laughs) this photographer knows what's up i'm just putting it that way the jolliest of santa claus photographers is kind of how where he sits in my brain it was it was great and i mean even when they have that slapstick moment where they knock over the statue and ultimately put this like toy squeezy tongue out head thing on it you expect the photographer to be a little peeved, but he just laughs it off, which is just like all around such a feel good portion of the movie. And that's that's kind of where I'm honestly really torn about the movie as a whole, because this individual scene by itself is such a delight. Again, not sure how I like how we had to get to this point. Well, I quote had to. So I don't know. That's still kind of hanging over my head right now. If we just hadn't had attempted murder, like, you know what I mean? Like, it was just, it was too extreme a step, which I feel like is why you and I both are kind of like, this latter half of the film is so sweet, but also, like, there was attempted murder. Yeah, yeah. So I feel like if they they maybe hadn't had this, you know, that particular stake so high... Yeah. Then maybe we'd feel a little bit different. Maybe they were going into town to just visit a lawyer. It's all like so symbolic and over the top anyway. Like, I don't know. Yeah. To be clear, I immensely enjoyed this film. So despite the premise, like 
Same. No, I I really enjoyed watching it. So we. I just I just can't help but call, <laughs> call out the attempted murder and the read plan. The read plan. I love that. The read plan. <laughs> Um, they're very important though. And I appreciate how they get turned in the latter half or very last part. Um, but they do get to go to an amusement park, which I found this. Okay. The sets in this scene are mind blowing. And the way that they use forced perspective, especially with a couple of the, like looking through the entrance into the park shots to give you this giant sense of scale and depth when, if you pause it and look closely, it's pretty small. <laughs> I find so cool. Now, I, they're still super elaborate, so don't get me wrong, but just the way that they're able to make something so elaborate feel even that much grander is impressive. Can we talk about this wild carnival game? That is like, if oh my you throw God. a ball, it releases a small piglet from a cage, and then the piglet just goes down a slide. I just... <laughs> and that's your reward? Your reward is watching... <laughs> A piglet. I just go down a slide. <laughs> uh, it's wild. It is wild. <laughs> but one of the piglets gets loose. Yeah, which causes so much pandemonium. Which it's a piglet. It's fine. You have the like quintessential but it's the city, Ian. Oh my God, it's Barnyard the city. Animals. They've never seen a piglet before. Well, and you have the like quintessential w- women gasping and lifting up all of their shoes off the floor as the piglet runs by and all that fun stuff, which is like this is funny and way over the top. And wow, it's just a piglet. But the wine scene, one, I would be up for a partially empty bottle of wine, and two, that poor pig is going to be drunk off its ass. But all of this kind of culminates in, oh, no, not yet. We're not there yet. We're at the dance now. They they go through a bunch of different stuff in here that's like kind of just a a fast-paced. We could have trimmed a a little little here and there. Yeah, I would have been okay with them trimming the drinking at the table at the very end. I didn't think that was needed, but the dance scene was great. And you have the wonderful gag with the shoulder straps. Yes. Okay, so you have the band starts playing like a very traditional, they call it the traditional something peasant dance. And of course, none of the city people know it, but our two main characters do because they be peasants. So they uh, start doing like the traditional dance. They're having a lot of fun. I think it's a lovely moment of like, you know, he was previously being lured away by the city. There was kind of this whole thing of like, you know, well, the city's better than the farm. And kind of here's a moment where like, you know, farm life gets to shine, like them and their like cultural heritage get to shine a little bit in kind of this more homogenous city. Um, So that's a lovely little bit of symbolism. But you do have the guy standing next to the woman who um, the straps on her dress keep falling off her shoulders and he'll fix them for her. Um, But he gets increasingly frustrated as the straps won't stay. (laughs) It was a delight to watch and her reaction of just like thank you each time it was deadpan the same that's the part that made it for me is like while he is getting more frustrated she's just like okay cool thanks and then at the very end one falls down he's like fuck it and pulls the other one down and that's when he gets slapped it's it's just like (laughs) it's funny yeah it was it was a funny little little comedic bit so they do 
have a quick drink at the club, the club. They almost don't have enough money to pay. And this is, I thought, kind of like a really sweet take on kind of the dynamic of the relationship where she helps pay at the end and is like, I don't know, it it felt kind of like a small call for like equality in that relationship. Very little, very late. Maybe just showing them as more of a team. Yeah. So like it, I don't know. It felt significant, but minor in the grand scheme of things. Does that well, make sense? Maybe he hadn't tried to buy her off with flowers earlier. Mm, bread. Um, no, the bread he <laughs> needed to do. <laughs> I'm going to defend the bread choice. Mostly because I'm hungry right now and I would like some You just bread. had a Danish. <laughs> someone, someone send me bread. <laughs> so they do ultimately sail home by moonlight which that entire scene is the sweetest it's lit beautifully you get the moon you have them like reclining and cuddling he returns the favor of like covering her up as she's sleeping to keep her warm like a beautiful book ending of that I don't care how much bread he bought you. I don't care how many flowers he bought you. I don't care how much you dance. I'm not falling asleep in a boat with that man. Well, they made up Maggie. It's it's fine. Don't worry. He tried to drown her the last time they were in a boat. I'm just saying, like, I don't, like, just don't fall asleep. Like, keep one eye open. I, I don't disagree. <laughs> Thank you. And especially not because that took a turn fast. Where did this storm come from? Are they like in the middle of the Atlantic? Like what? I love the cinematography around the storm blowing in though. Oh, it's it so well done. And the cuts and the editing just amp up all of the, the well, scariness of this giant thunderstorm that's threatening to like sink their boat and ultimately does sink their boat. But what I love here from a narrative standpoint is how the reeds come back and that she gets tied to the reeds. So like the, the instrument of her de- demise. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Two bundles, in fact. Two bundles. I would have noticed the reeds, Ian. <laughs> I would have noticed the reeds. I'm going to be so excited um, when you find reeds somewhere random in your apartment and you'll be like, I didn't notice those. <laughs> I will have always known they were there. <laughs> um, but no, I agree with you. I love I love the reeds coming back to be the thing that saves her. Um, I feel like I kind of would have liked it more if he had drowned saving her, but he That's survives. too postmodern. I, I don't disagree with you, but way too postmodern. <laughs> but we know that he survived first. Mm-hmm. Um He's washed up in like this little cave or something and he goes to town and is immediately like trying to get people to go help and try and find her. Now what they do here with his screaming and this, it sounded kind of like a muted trumpet. Like it's like a horn. Yeah. And it's just so dolorous and sad and just like, uh, tugs at your heartstrings. It was so like just perfectly done. Cause like you don't have the sound of his voice. Right. So instead we use the music we know exactly what he's feeling but we all are exactly what he's saying you know we don't know her name but we know he's calling for her but we also just get like so much emotion in it mm-hmm. with like the instrument they choose to use the note they go for like i just uh loved that and then the tension with the visuals here is 
so good because you have this frantic like the the actual shots i wouldn't call frantic but you see dancing lights around each of these scenes as if people are outside with lanterns running and it's just amping up the urgency of trying to get out and save her we do come back to the woman from the city who's like oh it happened and she's just like up on a limb watching from afar as as all this goes down loved her coat it was it was a good coat i also loved how she saw what was happening went behind the screen and grabbed two things from the chair and put it on like it was a weird i don't know it was like weirdly dynamic no, i know what you're talking about but it was an interesting like cut it was what and it was like an interesting like cut and like what they chose to frame yeah yeah i'm with you on that and it's almost like i'm curious if they were trying to use her implied nakedness to like comment on her character i don't know it but it it was an interesting choice yeah but no but like an yeah an interesting shot too i liked it too i i feel like it really did like i don't like it went with kind of the fast pace of that set of sequences in a really nice way. But I did like her like lounging in the tree. And I do love that how like from her point of view, everything's going according to plan. Read plan has worked. <laughs> Read plan. Yeah. So they do get this small flotilla out searching. You get the horn some more. You get beautifully framed shots of just the pinpricks of light looking around with the man screaming yelling for his wife off the front we've gotten a shot of her floating unconscious so we're not sure if she's alive uh still tied to those reeds but one of the bundles is coming apart and like leaving this trail of reeds so at one point like him and the rest of the search party like come across those reeds that have been become unbundled and he's like losing his mind. I want to know what his explanation for why he had two bundles of reeds to tie his wife to in that boat is going to be. Because you know someone in the search party is going to be like, yeah, we found her. She was tied to a couple bundles of reeds, which was really weird. Who, who, sa- who said that? No one said that. <laughs> I would have. I would have been like, we found her. We saved her under some really weird circumstances. What did kill me, though, is when they did show her, I didn't know if she was alive or not. So that was the other like piece of tension that that's the thing in this sequence. They build to us seeing the scattered reeds and then they they're like, okay, it's done. It's over. And he has to come home to this empty house with the like window shadow on her bed that's empty. And he's sad and like not. I, praying is not the right word, and but he's like homicidal on his knees, again. Just, yeah, because he tries to go after. Well, first off, again, the woman from the city thinks everything's gone according to plan, so she's back out there whistling for him. He goes out and attacks her and tries to strangle her because his solution is clearly violence always. And yeah, I I would kind of want to be like, you can't really blame her. Like, you said yes to the plan. You brought the reeds on the boat, my dude. Yeah, and it's it's one thing to, like, just kick her. What I'm about, the maintenance recommendation I'm about to make is not me trying to endorse violence against women. I'll leave it at that. He could have physically thrown her out of the house and left it at that. Like, yeah, he didn't he didn't have to, to strangle her. Or, like broken up with her or something yeah Yeah. it's it's just it's 
I feel like there hasn't been enough responsibility taken. Yeah, for his role in literally all of this. <laughs> yeah, like he, like, yes, she came up with the idea. Yeah, she's a bad person. We're not, we're not debating that. Lady from the city is a bad person. He also agreed to this plan and, like, took steps to put it into action. Yep. Yep. But you know what's interesting? Guess who also saves the woman from the city? His wife. <laughs> by not dying. Yes. <laughs> so they apparently found her down by some cape or something because that's the way the tides go. And she is in bed. Finally, finally, her hair is not pulled back in that scarily really perfect wig, like wig. It's still a um, really bad wig. <laughs> burn it. Burn it. Please burn it. Um, don't. You know it had so many bad chemicals in it. You don't want that in the atmosphere. Well... There were a lot worse things being burned in 1927 than that wig. <laughs> True. But the ending with the literal sunrise and the triumphant brass and the soundtrack, and it's just like, okay, we are at peace. Everything will be good. It was very satisfying. Until the, for the next type of movie city lady comes around. Did what? I said, until the next city lady comes around. Somehow I don't think city women will be lingering in that town any longer. <laughs> um, yeah, I overall really enjoyed it. Um, so I know you, this was something that you had brought up before we started recording, and I think we should talk it through. If in the first Academy Awards, there is only one best picture category, because at the time of those first awards, outstanding picture and most unique and artistic were considered equally the highest awards and then kind of retroactively the next year they were like okay well like unique and artistic was like fine but uh we're gonna keep outstanding let's pretend that there was only one award in that first best pictures do you give it to wings or do you give it to sunrise i think wings and i think i'm gonna hate myself for my reasoning so just remember that i said that <laughs> wings to me feels like this giant epic window into World War One and a part of that World War One that you really hadn't seen. And when I think about kind of the technical aspects around flying those shooting scenes, I just, I don't know, it's overall feels like the more impressive film. I'm trying to remember the performances better to really get a feel for whether I was on board with Janet Gaynor winning. I think I'm pretty sure that I am like good with her winning for her body of work that year. And especially when I haven't on this seen film. Seventh Heaven, that was one of the films she won for. That was also nominated for most outstanding picture. Mm. So Okay. I'm gonna guess she did very well in it. Yeah. So like I'm I'm very happy with that that outcome for her. Um, I think with Wings too, and this, I don't know if this is me being an apologist or not, but the, those themes did seem a little bit weightier, especially around the like development of a friendship and then loss and then trying to take it back to some commentary on the terribleness of war. Um, is that a reason it should have won over Sunrise? I don't know. Cause you could argue that Sunrise is a, a bit more general, though I will say all of this is through my 21st century lens. And so the flawed premise 
at the root of Sunrise is probably taking that down some pegs for me. So what I'm hearing is that Ian takes the Oscar bait. Remember when I because said Wings I is hate 100% myself? Remember when Oscar I said bait. that? <laughs> Before I even started giving my reasoning. <laughs> but also, best and unique and artistic picture, Sunrise, absolutely. Like, hands yeah, down. Yeah, no, I think that's a great summary. I kind of want to give it to Sunrise because... I mean, a lot of, like, the stuff you said about Wings is true. Like, it is epic. Uh, The technical achievements are absolutely outstanding. I kind of like just, like, the smaller, more, like, intimate setting of Sunrise. Like, and I, like, I like that the characters don't have names. Mm -hmm. I really like the artistry. I love that they got so creative with the title cards. I love that... They didn't rely on the title cards, though, super heavily. I love that we got these, like, long segments of, like, watching the actors and, like, I don't know. I My decision is definitely being shaded by the all of the movies we've watched previously. And... We've watched Wings since that we... And we haven't watched anything like Sunrise. Or we've watched very little like Sunrise. It's it's much more like intimate and like well again I don't know why we had to go with murder <laughs> but you know dealing with like a complicated relationship like I I think about like the photography scene and like how good that was and yeah like like and I think like I just I feel like we've seen so much that's like wings and we just haven't seen it yeah. much that is quite like sunrise I'd agree. I I would say that parts of It Happened One Night remind me of parts of Sunrise. I would say that uh, I was also thinking Marty a little bit. Yeah. With like how we're kind of just really exploring the like relationship between two. Uh, Mar- I mean, Marty's a lot more nuanced and stuff, um, obviously, but it's, you know, it's, it's later. It's um, a little bit meatier, but like we're dealing with like you know, some complicated relationships and feelings, you know, with, with two characters that like are very much like normal people. Mm -hmm. I see your perspective. So I think Ian's team wings and I am team sunrise. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to stick by my wings. It's the romantic in me, Ian. (laughs) I mean, he gave her a basket of bread and I was just like. (laughs) So that is uh, sunrise, a song of two humans really great film it's i think as a recording included with prime um so i recommend watching it it's and it's also relatively short so easy to watch in an afternoon yeah uh really glad we went back and did this one for our 100th episode i think it was a great way to celebrate me too and it's uh also a really great palate cleanser before our next uh oscar winner uh schindler's list so yeah join us next time for that we will both um, be crying bring your handkerchiefs yep until next time you can catch us on instagram or twitter we are at best pictures pod on both you can email us in at best pictures podcast at gmail.com rate subscribe review that way you don't miss any of our next hundred episodes 
now you have me thinking about what we're going to do for a hundred more episodes. (laughs) It's great. Thanks for listening. I don't know. (laughs) I know I just had a Danish Ian, but I still want bread. (laughs)